Hey gang, welcome to the Your Basket is Empty pod, a space where I sit down with agencies, brands, and original e-com thinkers to discuss their journey, practical advice, and how they're navigating the current digital landscape. Your Basket is Empty is also a bi-monthly industry newsletter that covers the most interesting e-com and direct consumer news, interviews with original e-com thinkers, a jobs board, an event listing section, and a playlist. Go check that out at yourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, we're chatting with Edward Upton, founder and CEO of Little Data, and we are discussing building a future-proof data platform. We touch on the fallacy of big data, the importance of harvesting the right data, GA4's TLDR, navigating data regulation, the power of Shopify's product velocity, and the pros and cons of being platform partner agnostic. Before we get into it, this episode is brought to you by my good friends at OmniSend. You might have heard things like email marketing is expensive, has low ROI, or it's too complicated. Now, what if I told you these are all myths? In reality, email marketing can be affordable, bring in a great return on investment, and is incredibly straightforward. Or at least, that's all true if you used OmniSend, the email marketing and SMS platform used by more than 100,000 e-commerce brands to attract, convert, and keep new customers. OmniSend is intuitive, packed with pre-built templates and automation workflows, and guess what? It's 40% cheaper than the leading e-commerce marketing platforms. Worried about ROI? In 2022, OmniSend's merchants enjoyed a staggering average return on investment of $72 per every dollar spent, which is double the industry average of $36. And if you ever need help, get your questions answered in under three minutes by an award-winning support team that's available 24-7, even during busy days like Black Friday and Christmas. So don't let Miss hold you back. Experience email marketing that really sells with OmniSend. Find out more at getomnisend.com slash your basket is empty and give your e-commerce brand the boost it deserves. Ed, welcome to the pod. How are you and where are you? Uh, very good. Thanks for having me, Tim. Well, um, I am doing well and I'm currently in Newbury, uh, sunny Newbury in south, south of England. Nice. You're going to have to explain where Newbury is to me. My geography is not that good. Yeah, it's just kind of like take, take Ox- Oxford in the middle of the country, kind of due south from there, due west from London. So got kind it, of, got it, got it. Um, it's a sort of convenient place to be based. It used to work in the days before people actually uh, stopped driving everywhere, it used to be kind of a classic um, hub for companies to have their headquarters. But obviously now yeah, right. we just have remote working as, as we do a little later. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, is, it, is it officially in Somerset? Um, we are in West Berkshire. We're not that far west. No one for headquarters of Vodafone until obviously they decided to, like everyone else, move to London. So, <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Well, this is both interesting from a ge- ge- geography perspective and then a uh, corporate uh, perspective as well in terms of where head offices are. However, today is not about that. Uh, we're going to be talking about how to build a future proof data platform. For the uninitiated, I'd like to do a little bit of a rewind or set the scene. What is Little Data and how do you help brands? Great. So Little Data um, helps brands get super accurate data about their customer journey. So by customer journey, we mean all the touch points that happen on their e-commerce store from uh, typically starting with the marketing channel that acquires the customer through kind of browsing, um, adding to cart checkout, and also kind of post-purchase behavior, refunds, upsells, um, fulfillments, et cetera. And um, we do that with a sort of proprietary technology that integrates deeply into the e-commerce platform itself, so into the back end of Shopify. Um, 
and really out the box without, so we're not an agency. We don't sort of help um, do lots of custom builds for brands out the box. We can just make sure that all of the data is captured and then we can feed it into the data destinations of brand needs. And the start that was Google Analytics and the Google marketing platform, obviously number one for a lot of a lot of brand tracking. Uh, we launched on Meta for, for Facebook and Instagram last year. And uh, we just launched uh, TikTok and Pinterest this year and Klaviyo will be coming soon. Interesting. And does that plumbing go into things like BI and data warehouses and all that sort of stuff? Like the endpoints don't really, really matter from your perspective? It does for some brands. I guess it really depends on the size of brand, uh, what's appropriate. So I guess you might start with just get, you know having Google Analytics as a, as a sort of one-stop platform to go into. Next step up from there might be using Looker Studio, as it's now called, um, to kind of then build reports on top of that. Next step beyond there might be streaming all those data points into BigQuery, a data warehouse, and then be using a BI tool, maybe a, a you know a Tableau or a, or a um, Power BI on top of that. And then um, you know the highest end of the biggest brands you work with, um, you know, might be having their own data warehouse on something like a Snowflake, and we stream into there via another data platform called Segment. Interesting. So uh, you, you set the scene very well. <laughs> and my observation, and I'm happy to be challenged on this, is that data is great. But what's probably more important and useful is the interpretation of that data. So yeah. how do you guys help in that front? Or is it your job simply to provide the data? And then like you kind of talked about there, there's other tools that help them interpret it. To some extent that, but I mean, let's talk about kind of what, why the name Little Data. So um, I guess when I started the business, what I got fed about is lots of people banging on about big data and hey, this whole sort of just, we'll hoover it up. And then at a later stage, we'll figure out how to connect all together. And there'll be mm-hmm. huge value as long as we're just, you know, harvesting The new oil. The, the new, new oil. oil. Yeah, exactly. Just <laughs> drill, a, drill a hole anywhere, gush out the ground. Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, and and one of the big fallacies of that is is that in this sort of data lake, as you created, is, is it's completely impossible to – there's no structure. There's no, there's no way of actually linking together all of these customer touch points into a journey. And without understanding the journey, obviously, you can't understand any way that you can actually improve the customer experience or, or, your, or your marketing campaigns. And so um, the point about little data is that, you know, there are just a few things that you need to get really right. <laughs> and one of those is the ability to to link the purchases, which obviously like as an e-commerce brand, your, your kind of critical data points back to the marketing campaigns that bought them. And so I think that you, you're right. To some level, it's not just about harvesting the data. It's about getting in the right place. As I said, we don't provide like reporting tools. We're not a dashboard. So we, to some extent, we are agnostic about what the brand does with it down the day. But we do make sure that um, the key data points, particularly the accuracy of the purchase orders, is, is tracked correctly. It's a slight deviation from where we are right now. But I know you've been talking a lot about GA4. What have you learned and maybe what's your TLDR on that whole thing? I'm going to admit, I know fuck all about it. <laughs> I've been sitting on the sidelines thinking I should, I should learn more about this, but it's not really my space. It doesn't really impact my business, but obviously being in the space, so you, can, you can consider me a official Luddite. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I don't. You're not alone there, right? It's one of those topics that that people read about and they're like, they immediately go to sleep. So most people just hope that it goes away and sorts itself out. Right? And I guess our, our, one of our jobs as businesses to actually <laughs> care about it and, and sort out the details underneath. Um, I think TLDR is there was a lot of noise about uh, this transition. Um, a lot of brands found it very painful because not only is it a completely different sort of collection infrastructure, so they actually have to redo. We do the tagging of their site, but it's also a completely different reporting 
uh, interface. So they have to actually redo how they think about their their kind of um, you know marketing analytics. Um, Honestly, I think it's a great new product. It's just very different to the old product. So I think that a lot of the hoo-ha will die down over the next couple of months. I, I think mm-hmm. the brands we're talking to, although, as I said, it was a difficult, challenging transition, I think we're seeing that they are getting familiar with the new tool. Um, there's a few configuration options that once they get set up, you know, seem to make reporting work a lot better. You know, what we promise as a business is to help brands you know, get like-for-like like as much as possible with what they're tracking before. Um and then to add to the confusion, as if, as if Google's own product marketing messages weren't confusing enough, and they were very confusing. <laughs> Everything from like, it's completely new, you're going to have to see it's a new thing, to don't worry, we'll just transition it automatically to, oh, that transition doesn't work. But what was confusing is then Shopify launched um, back in, in March its own, um, what they call Google sales channel, or Google and YouTube sales channel to be specific. And they again, they promised to just fix this problem. Hey, just add this sales channel, it will go away. And what we're seeing there is that it doesn't work particularly well. It does it does track some of the basics, but going back to like the stuff you really care about, you're not going to see uh, 100% accuracy with the actual purchase tracking. And the real problem is not that it doesn't work. It's that there's a, there's a big confusion between who owns it. So Shopify, if you go and ask them, says, oh, no, Google's maintaining that. And Google, if you can actually get hold of them, which almost no one can, will say, we've never heard of this thing. <laughs> Interesting. That, that That's fascinating. I, I, I was um, unaware that the product marketing or messaging and communications was was a big part of the confusion. One would have assumed that they ha- they would have had that under control, right? The, the size of the company that they are and the coffers that they have. You, you think so, wouldn't you? But I, I think that stuff all gets harder the, the scale you're at. And, and the weird thing about Google Analytics, although it's a very one of Google's sort of top three products in terms of users, or top five products in terms of users, it, obviously in terms of revenue, it's nowhere. So... In some ways, Google cares about it. In some ways, it, it doesn't. Yeah, I suppose compared to search and the revenue and margin that they drive from that, it's just a totally different... Indirectly drives ad revenue, right? But it's not like Google Ads. It doesn't get the same amount of, of, of internal attention. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting... I mean, I, I don't know the, the history of it, but I suppose it's an interesting kind of... Ultimately, it's a bolt-on, right? It's not really part of the core business. Yeah, well, Google, uh, the history is, is Google acquired the single urchin in, in 2007, um, but they then rebuilt it. Um, but they rebuilt it, you know, think back to what the internet was 15 years ago. Like, it, the whole, everything had to work at different scales. So one of the reasons why they had launched Google Analytics 4 is the old version didn't, it wasn't fit for purpose anymore. I mean, it was consuming vast amounts of their of their cloud computing because it was operating a scale that wasn't built for. Um, and... Uh, yeah, again, in terms of the kind of the the, the whole uh, data model was, let's say, kind of too restrictive and out of date. So, yeah, there was a reason why they need to leap to the new product, but it's it has caused pain. And I think uh, what we've seen in the market is a lot of, uh, you know, although Google was trying to push people onto it a couple of months ago, I think a lot of brands haven't got there yet. Like they're just getting their heads around this month. Of like, right, we're back from summer holidays. Like, let's let's now look at uh, how do we make this work for us. But I think they have to make it work for them, part mainly exactly because it is the main gateway into Google marketing platform. And so what what I can tell you for sure is that there's I don't think I met any brand that says we don't spend any dollars on Google, right? So, and Google's very <laughs> clear that you know they're all of the product development they're putting into um, ad personalization, audience, etc. Is effectively rooted through Google Analytics. Like they, they, you know, they don't want you to send data direct to Google Ads. It's much more powerful if you can use GA to be the the the, the conduit of that. It, it strikes me that there's echoes between the, that kind of um, transition from their old platform into GA four and the sort of uh, GDPR compliance 
sort of uh, work and introductions of the last while, which leads me on to an incredibly fascinating topic, and that is regulatory <laughs> data protection. Yeah. So, how, um, you know, you guys must be at the forefront, the coalface of this. So how, how do you find that balance between regu- regulatory data protection and ensuring the brands get the best quality data? Where do you sit there? Like, do you have a team that do that? You know, how does that work? Yeah, I guess you know part of our expertise, as I said, in how to how to do the tracking in conjunction with complying with these regulations. I guess ultimately we're on the side of the brand. We're trying to help the brand get a maximal data capture as we can within the regulations, and obviously, but we're not trying to you know. Um, there is a line. I mean, I wrote about this um, on our blog last month because, yeah, I think there are certain technologies out there, fingerprinting being a good example, which I think go over that line. They're basically trying to bypass the user's wish to not be tracked. And I believe that actually what we need to do, and and, and I think it's Google's um, approach to this generally, although we'll, we'll go on, <laughs> they may be again a little bit different from the different arms of the business. I think we, we live in a privacy-first world, and we have to respect that not always users want to be tracked. And so in, in, if we take GDPR as an example, if they land on the website and they, they have that cookie banner and they uh, can effectively accept or not, and what we just have to ensure is that when they click accept or at any point that they click accept, that we track as much as we can at that point. Um, and if we don't, that we kind of wait until they do. Because, um, yeah, there, there are many challenges there, but one of the very simple ones is that, so imagine like you, your campaign takes a landing page. Um, the landing page has those ETM parameters in the, in, the, in the link, which tell you where the campaign is. But if you don't track the user until the subsequent page, because they haven't clicked that banner on the first page, then you lose all that marketing activity. You lose all that knowledge about what bought the user there. So what you have to do is make sure that you are tracking them after the page loads, but kind of before they go to the next page. It's, it's a fascinating area, isn't it? Like I feel like from a consumer experience perspective, my observation is that... Um, GDPR hasn't changed anything. In fact, it's made my experience more annoying. Yeah. I just want to get the thing out of the way, right? Like there is this now this this very annoying pop-up <laughs> across every single site. And the reality is that the uh, the the intent of the and it's not just a brand of the person that's, you know, surfacing this pop-up is to get you to sign up to whatever the thing it is that they want, right? So then to opt out or to change my behavior uh, my my data capture, it becomes a pain in the ass. So everyone just accepts it, right? Just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Get it out of the way. I just, I just want to get in there. And then I think like from an e-com perspective, my observation is take my data. Like you're going to serve me good stuff. You're right. going to serve me, you know, like relevant content, relevant deals. I think the whole Cambridge Analytica and Facebook have really fucked it because that, you know, that's quite nefarious. You know, I, I do feel that that kind of attitude to data is a spectrum, right? And, and that has really bled into a lot of what we're talking about, but maybe unfairly. Yeah, I think it absolutely has. And so it's created this default preference for regulators that consumers need to be protected. Um, whereas you say in a lot of cases, there's a implicit bargain most people are quite happy with that, you know, yeah. you track me and, and then I get personalization. I, I think the other thing is, is I don't know if you've seen Google's sort of new privacy center. So, you know, whenever you, now you go on Google search, it's sort of on a new browser, it says, you know, you've got to opt into this. And again, it's sort of nice to design this, but again, there's so, way too much choice there. It's, you know, it assumes users have like hours to consider their marketing choices. So you're right. I actually prefer the way they do it in the US now. So it's California consumer protection and, and now being copied in a few other states. It gives you the right to opt out. But it doesn't. It doesn't require you to have that annoying cookie banner, you know, when you land on the site. So I think I think that's a better balance, to be honest. Now, let's be honest. The other point here is that a lot of consumers, regulation or not, a lot of consumers are opting out by just having an ad blocker. 
I mean, you know, mm. so that's that's fine. I mean, that that's again the modern world. So depending on which geography you're in, there's a there's a, and what kind of devices people are on. There's a large number of people who just use ad blockers by default and block the tracking. So that happens as a, as a tracking business. We have to get you know work around that. But it, I don't think regulation needed to protect. You know, the consumers don't want to be tracked. There are already ways they can do that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I suppose, I suppose, yeah, that the the maybe. The, the changes in regulation have uh, forced consumers just to be more aware of what's going on. That's been a big part of it, you know, and then they are making their own decisions based on that. A slight change of gears. Um, I know you're kind of platform agnostic to some degree, um, and we can agree that all partners are equal to some degree. But I'm curious, like, what's your general take on the e-com platform market? I think it's a very interesting space race that's going on at the moment who do you think's winning who has work to do what's your take so i mean to the history of our company is we we took the decision to sort of focus 100 percent on shopify in in 2019 and you know that was a pretty good decision um you know, i think they've been over the last four or five years been very much net beneficiaries and particularly you know we're, we're obviously typically selling to the larger end of shopify so um brands you know we have smaller customers are typically brands doing more than two million a year online and why shopify one out there i mean i think they just have a quite a commanding lead now in just product velocity a, a lot of b2b SaaS, as you say it is an arms race in any given sector you've just got to actually um, keep ahead of, of the competition it's all moving fast and i think it, you know what was there's really interesting gartner report about this um i was reading last uh, last month and it was pointing out just how much <laughs> more money Shopify invests in R&D now compared to the, all the other platforms in the race. I, I think Shopify is still winning in most of those categories, but it's it's most dominant in that lower mid market. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I think it strikes me as like bonkers that anyone within that kind of, well, slight sidestep, I think, and I did some work. I've been doing work sort of like sort of on and off trying to like actually analyze the market. And I think what's interesting is the way in which everyone describes it it's different. So the way that you describe the mid-market to me is kind of like we're pretty aligned. I'll go and talk to somebody else and it's totally out. So for them, enterprise starts at like 1 billion. And that's if you're talking to like a Salesforce commerce cloud. Now you talk to Shopify, that's not enterprise. Like their enterprise starts at like 500 million. Then it gets deeper and it's like, okay, well, is it a billion like revenue across their entire business? How much of that is online retail? It might be a tiny percentage, but the business itself is enterprise. So therefore they sit into the, you know, the enterprise. So I think the categorization is an interesting concept. And I think the, the GMV is, 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 is a good indicator, but then it's ultimately the business complexity. And I think that's where most of the, that's kind of where Shopify potentially has chinks in its armor, rightly so, because they're a mass market product. It's yeah. like, like B2B, internationalization, all the classic stuff, you know, content and commerce, you know, this is, and hence why I think, yeah, some of the headless platforms can, can, can kind of, make some moves but yeah i i find it fascinating like the the ultimately you know shopify is going upstream and a lot of those other players are coming downstream and then you've got this weird world in the middle where i do find some of the brands will be casualties because they're both going for them it's a bit of a land grab and yeah i'm not convinced that i'm not sure if their needs are really being met because <laughs> it's a it's, it's a platform grab so so we i mean it's yeah, candidly, we launched on big commerce last year. Partly, you know, we, we felt like we should have a, <laughs> another horse in the race other than Shopify, but mm-hmm. also because 
we saw, you know, BigCommerce's strategy was exactly to attack that upper mid-market sector. Again, what they call enterprise, but BigCommerce's definition of enterprise is laughably anything more than a couple of million a year. The strategy was right, but unfortunately, I think the execution has not been right. You know, so, so I think they, they absolutely aim to pick off the lack of B2B integration, the lack of multi-store, all of these classic pain points. The problem is Shopify got there first. So in the meantime, you know, Shopify have launched Shopify markets, and that's not there yet, but markets V2 is looking better. They've launched you know, some more B2B. They talked about a lot this summer's release releases. That's what I mean about product velocity. I think although they might not be there yet, I think that they they know their they know the gaps and they don't want to give up that upper Shopify strategy is not to just be great for the million dollar stores. They want to be great for the billion dollar stores too. Yeah, totally. And I, I think their product velocity coupled with their product marketing is a fucking killer combination, right? Like I think the two of them combined, I don't see any other platforms competing with them on that. Now, I think once you dig into requirements and you dig into the actual product, Shopify may not actually be as good as say a big commerce, but I think yeah. they tell the story a lot better. Yeah. And ultimately... Like it all boils down to the portfolio, right? A brand will look at another brand and go, like, oh, okay, you've made that decision. Great. I'm like, you know, my board will be happy with that. And then, of course, I'll go to the Gartner Magic Quadrant and now Shopify is in the top right, you know, another big tick. Um, so I want to talk or stay on the kind of partner ecosystem. Mm. What's your general thoughts on it? Because my thoughts are it kind of changes over time, right? Maybe, I don't know, six to 10 year cycles, right? There'll be leading partners in the ecosystem and then they might get bought. They might be about to IPO like a Clavio, you know, and then we kind of go through these cycles. Like, what do you think about it? What do you think about the, the, the ecosystem at the moment? And how do you guys kind of fit into it working with tech partners and, and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, first of all, um, yeah, again, going back to kind of one, one of the competitive advantages for Shopify is that they have, you know, they, they've built through, through design with their App Store and so on a very vibrant ecosystem. So that, you know, there are lots of, uh, I, mean, I don't know how many apps are on the App Store now, but that, you know, there are, there are hundreds of thousands. Um, and, you know, e- even amongst the, the bigger partners, there are, there are dozens and dozens who, you know, who we can work with who have um, lots of global customers. I think in terms of our partnerships within, you know, of, of other tech partnerships within the space, we, we've we obviously focused on, you know, apps that are, well, both relevant to those larger brands, but also there is a stake in the data accuracy. Um, so a big category, for example, is subscription apps. And then, you know, then I think the other obvious category um, is other stuff that's around the, the orders and upgrades. So upsell apps, again, you know, you, one of Classic problems has been that you can't track upsells um, easily, post-purchase upsells on Shopify carts. So again, we integrate with a lot of those. And then the other category is sort of marketing apps. Yeah, generally not not yes, sort of what I would call off-site marketing apps like the likes of Clavio, um, but also on-site marketing apps that are doing promotions, pre-purchase upsells, pre-checkout upsells, etc. Because again, all of those have a vast interest in being in the cust- in the brand being able to track the impact of their thing and 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 most of them do have some internal analytics like you can go into their tools and you can see obviously but the, but every brand knows that there's somewhat vanity metrics like as a, if you for example if your app does um pop-up banners to promote a sale obviously you want people to see to attribute that to orders right so you're going to everyone who sees that you're going to claim has been influenced by it whereas if they push all that data to google analytics the brand understands they become a bit more like for like mm-hmm. and also understand the interactions like did, did, is it important when people come from Facebook that they see that banner, etc. That's a really interesting point, and it was something I wanted to ask you about in terms of your product roadmap. How does your product roadmap 
work. Do you, do you, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of it comes from brands, your customers, yeah. but how much does the partner ecosystem, based on what you've just said there, like, do you look for gaps in partners and where their stack isn't just quite, you know, uh, allowing the brand to have that, you know, richer data experience? Yeah, to some extent. I think I think we look for, for for sort of what I would call partner categories, areas where there's a, there's an obvious area for sort of enrichment, because we're, we're we're all about sort of you know having better quality data, and if we feel like from that kind of app there's a, there's a gap in visibility or tracking for the brand that we can fill, that's that's interesting. As you say, the nice thing about the scale that we're operating at now uh, with over a thousand customers is that we have pretty consistent, you know. Requests and I think like every product-led company, you know, you don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't do it when the first person answers it. It's when you've had like the tenth or twentieth mm-hmm. uh, request mm-hmm. that you know this is something that's that's a real need for a lot of for a lot of brands. So get, perhaps to answer your question more directly about the roadmap, I mean, I, I think that yeah, it's it's a it's a few different things. It, it's it's building out. I mean, it's obviously as we talked about launching new data destinations for that the brands care about. So again, our our products. Uh, strategy there is really just to support the major de- the major marketing channels the brands care about, um, and as I said, that's definitely Google and Meta, and that's why we supported them first. But it is also, you know, I think email marketing is a big part of that, and I think I think there are some up and coming, you know, ad platforms like TikTok and Pinterest that are part of that. And then obviously, you know, within just our current support for Google Google Analytics, you know, we just want to basically broaden and enrich what we can do there. So. Um, as I said, where there are opportunities to integrate, for example, with a subscription app to to enrich the, the data we can get from there, then we'll do that. So I want to end on a slightly more philosophical note, something I'm introducing to the podcasts going forward. Uh, I'd love to know what's going on in the future, but I'm curious what you have changed your mind about in the last 12 months. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think one of them actually does come back to this where I see the, the, the e-commerce wars going. I, you know, I think 12 months ago, I was a lot more um, bullish. Or less, or I thought it was important for us to be a multi-platform app. Um, I actually think based on different moves in the last few years I, and, and just Shopify's growth, I think actually I feel less, we, we didn't get to talk about Clavier's IPO, but you know, if you look at that, they've built a half a billion business, which is nearly 80% reliant on Shopify. Now they have a part, they have a platform risk problem <laughs> at my scale. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I'm not so worried about it. Like, you know, I think we can build a very successful business and probably meet all of our, all of our dreams by just being on Shopify. So I, I think that's one of the things I changed my mind about is like the need to be, a multi-platform app. Now, I'd love to serve, you know, we have brands coming to us who are on WooCommerce or Magento or whatever. I'd love to be able to serve them better. But the reality is that, you know, you have to absolutely, you know, focus or die in, in the world of, uh, of software. And I'm not sure that, and I think we're probably better served now being, you know, super focused on just keeping up with all the stuff that's happening on Shopify and the Shopify partner system than having to also worry about big commerce and, and uh, mm-hmm. Salesforce and so on. That leads me to my final question. Where is little data in two years' time? Well, I hope we're you know, relevant to even more brands. Most of the brands we work with are already using Google Analytics and similar data destinations we feed. The message we have to get to them is that they can get a much higher return investment from their ad spend if they can actually get um, better metrics and better audiences in those tools. 
And I think, you know, I, I hope we can carry on expanding the team. We have, you know, we have a great team now of 35 people globally who support Little Data. As you say, I think we've become experts in our niche. And I think it's it's really important that actually we can nurture that sort of expertise and be able to support because the world is changing rapidly. And so I, I wouldn't, you know, in two years' time, I don't have fixed views on like where the product's going to be. But I do have a product vision that says, you know, we're going to be sticking close to what those brands need. So if there's a new social channel that opens up tomorrow and starts getting loads of attention, yeah, in a year, we'll be there. I think that's an important thing as any product-led business that, yeah, we don't have fixed views on where we should be. We just want to actually follow what the customer base needs. I think that's very sage advice, and I think that's a good way to end the pod. Ed, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Tim. There you go, folks. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you've heard, please like, download, subscribe, and tell all your mates to do the same. Before we go, a quick word from our friends at OmniSend, the ROI-focused email and SMS marketing platform for online merchants. Go check them out at getomnisend.com slash your basket is empty. We'll see you next time.